Hello, I can't come to the phone right now. Please leave your name, telephone number, and the time you called, and I will return your call as soon as I can. Didio. Hi. It's about quarter to three. If you uh, haven't left yet and you get this message, give me a shout back. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, we will be showing some visuals on this, including text, and also my collaborator on Say Something Bunny and the executive director of Unidox, and also my partner, <laughs> Christopher Allen, is here, uh, and he's going to Hi. be helping us uh, run the presentation. It might interject. So the piece that we were playing when you came in is a piece called Dan Carter, and it's one of the earliest pieces that I made in my practice back in 2006 is really the my, one of my first forays into using found objects as a starting point for creating pieces, videos, performances. We'll get into that. Uh, but Dan Carter, I used to go to thrift stores and buy answering machines that people left the tapes in and would collect these and bring them home and listen to them and was just amazed how these created these little portraits of people's lives by accident. So Dan Carter is the unedited answering machine of a man named Dan Carter. And I played each roles of the people who left messages on his answering machine to create a portrait of him. <laughs> so it's one of my earliest works and created this practice of using found objects for videos, performances, installations, drawings, interactive projects. And these works really originate from scavenging or finding an object that contains some sort of curious Thing about its previous owner that I found worth exploring. And these are often donated or left behind or somehow forgotten. They're not things that people are selling. I have no connection to the original owner of these objects. I feel like these are really valuable documents of the human experience that's very different from the act of a memoir, these accidental kind of quotidian things that we make in just being alive. So for example, one of my collections is an ongoing collection of black and white photographs of rainbows. Um, and there's so many of these, but you know, the, the wonder of trying to capture this thing that's in front of you that's beautiful and the inability of technology to actually keep, capture that. So, and also occasionally I find items online for inspiration. So this is less of a found object and something that I just really loved that was on the internet. So one of my favorite videos is this video called Hungry Kitty. And I made a response piece that's an attempt to change the perspective of the cat video. What you doing? You want some milk? Huh? You want some milk? Okay. Okay, I'll get you some milk. Okay? Let's 
So trying to kind of recreate the moment or put myself in another person's shoes, I guess, or another cat's fur, I guess, would be the example of this. Um, so a lot of my work is in other forms, but for this talk, I really wanted to focus on my piece, Say Something Bunny, which is really based on a found audio recording. So this is currently a project that's being presented right now in Chelsea, New York, and it's based on a sound recording made on a machine called a wire recorder. And this machine made two recordings that is part of my, my research and production. It was given to me by a friend in 2011, and he got the wire recorder from a friend who got it from a man who got it from an estate sale somewhere in New York. And when he opened the box, there were two reels, a pair of reels in the machine hidden inside that looked like this. And it's actually sound that's been recorded to a piece of wire as thin as a piece of hair. Now, the two recordings that I've been working with, um, there are no labels on them, or context, or dates, or names. And a lot of it was really difficult to hear and decipher, like this. How many voices do you hear? And like, what are they saying? What are their names? Where are they from? What year is it? So to answer these questions, I listened to these recordings hundreds of times. And I eventually learned a lot about the people heard in the recording, though I, um, I think only one of them might still be alive, the youngest, Larry. So the first thing I did was I made a transcript. And it's incomplete and it's flawed, and it, but it's my best guess as as to what was recorded on these wires. So these are the first couple pages of the transcript. And I really appreciate Gwen from ReSound putting these together. And so this is, I'd ask you not to flip through this yet. Don't I'll get tell ahead you when of yourself. to flip the page. Stop it. <laughs> I'll tell you when you should turn the page. And so this is an excerpt of a script. The full script is 93 pages. Each page in the script is 30 seconds of the recording. So, and the recording itself is 45 minutes in length of unedited, unedited sound, the original raw sound. So some pages are more dense, like this, than others that seem, that, that, that are more sparse. But no matter how much is heard on the page, they're all given equal importance. So the performance that came out of this recording is a two and a half hour one woman show. And the format is structured as an actor's read through. So it takes place at a 14-foot circular table where there's a small audience of only 25 people invited to take a seat. And in doing so, they cast themselves as one of the characters heard in the original recording. So all of the people who are entering this room right now, they're both audience and participants, but they're not actors. So your casting doesn't reflect your age, your race, your gender. It's completely dictated by chance on what seat you take at the performance. So. Um, this is the cast list. We're going to start on page one. This is our cast list. And a couple who attends the show might be cast as sisters. Your, a young woman might play the role of grandpa, or your boyfriend might be your pet parakeet. So chance is a factor. And it's not revealed to you what your role is until you take your seat. So you don't know going in where you're, who you're going to play. So although the audience is cast in these roles, they don't actually have to say anything out loud or perform. All they have to do is listen and read. So I feel like showing is a lot more effective instead of uh, talking about it. So um, 
We're gonna do a little bit of an experiment today. So we didn't do this yesterday. Yesterday we just showed a video <laughs> excerpt and today I thought we're gonna play the video and I'm gonna say the corresponding part. So I'm gonna try and do it live. Haven't done this outside of the performance that much. So hopefully hope it, it all goes well. It's an experiment. So hopefully you'll all be into participating in that. So everyone, does everyone have a script? So to help guide you through this act of reading, the page numbers that we're going to be hearing will appear on this screen. And we're gonna try this experiment, so I think we're gonna start it now. So that's a, about a 10 minute excerpt from the beginning of Say Something Funny and kind of shows how the piece is taking this audio recording and making us all listen to it together. Um, and I'm gonna kind of talk about my approach to it. It's not so much the technical side in this, uh, in this presentation, it's really kind of thinking about how to think about found sound, and hopefully you can approach, use a lot of these ideas to stuff that you're working on that's maybe just an interview or something, that it doesn't always have to be found sound here. So this process really started with deep listening. And so the audience that we're using in the recording is raw. It's the audio that's been recorded directly out of the wire recorder, and it hasn't been cleaned up. We haven't compressed it or done anything to it. It's really been always my preference to use the audio as is and just keep all of the hums and all the kind of like sounds that people might think is white noise. Because for me in this piece, I didn't know anything about these people. Every hum, every click, every like dishes in the background, that was giving me so much information about what was happening in the scene. So for me, it was essential to keep that in the performance and keep that in the audio recording. Also, the other thing that I was learning about it was there were times where there were two characters with very similar voices that I thought it was one character for a really long time. And then there was this one moment where their voices overlapped each other. And I realized it was two people. So this act of deep listening completely transformed the context of that room, who said what. And so this is kind of, I'm gonna do an exercise with you about deep listening. And we're going to use an example from, from Say Something Bunny that happens in act two. Um, we're gonna focus on the character Florence. So Florence is the aunt. Uh, she's the great aunt, I guess, in act two. And her voice sounds like this. How can I talk with the mouth of a fool? I have a frankfurt in my mouth. How can I talk to you now? Okay, let's go, boys. So we're going to listen to a 30-second sample. And this is how I did it. So I listened to the, a piece. I would just focus on one character at a time and just try and only hear them and really just focus my attention just on listening to one voice at a time and would write down what I thought that they said. Then I'd go to the next character. So I want you to either close your eyes or you can listen and follow along with the transcription of just Florence's part on the screen. It's up to you what you think you can handle. She's in the foreground of the audio recording, so her, she really has the loudest voice here. And you just had a sample, so you're really trying to get, going to tune in for her, Florence's voice. So we're gonna play a 30 second clip from page 59. Get her a sheep Get her a sheep I know what it is. I want a new spring for her. A black one? A black one? So. My mother likes me. Okay. Surprise! I know I can do. You Okay, so th there are multiple conversations kind of happening at the same time or people talking over each other. So I, I don't know how many characters are in the scene. There might be like seven or eight characters whose voices are heard at some point in, in this moment. So we're going to now listen to the exact same First 30 of, seconds. Could you hear Florence? Oh yeah. Who could hear yeah. Florence? Yeah. Who could, yeah. Good, okay, pretty easy. <laughs> 
Good. You're audio people, so I feel like they're an easy audience. <laughs> okay, so we're going to listen to 30 seconds again, and now we're going to try and look at all of the, we're going to basically see a transcription that's accounting for every sound heard in this 30 seconds. Get her a shea brazier. Get her a shea brazier. A shea brazier? I want a new sprinkle. A large one? So. My mother likes me. Okay. Surprise! I know I can do part of this process is research. So deep listening was a really big part of it, but research totally would inform how I heard things. So I don't know if any of you noticed this, but in the background, it sounds like there's something else playing, like a radio or something. Like there is maybe a little bit of texture that didn't sound like it was a person in the room, but a radio or something. Wire recorders recorded sound to the wires magnetically. So you could tape over stuff on the wires. The wire used in this wire recording was broken and it wasn't fully erasing the thing that was previously on the wire. And so you can still hear the thing that was previously on the wire in the background. It's not a radio in the room, it's what was on the wire before. So I started to research this and I realized that what they taped over was an episode of Our Miss Brooks. It was a radio program from the, it was played in the 40s to the 50s. It was played maybe for like eight or 10 years, like every week. There's a lot of episodes of this show. Um, but I decided I'm gonna try and find the script that's being performed on this recording. So I went to the UCLA archives and I found the original script. And then I listened to the recording again and then I transcribed what was heard in this script in the background. So now we're not gonna listen to the people in the room. We're just gonna try and hear the thing that it was taped over. And we're and we'll, we'll have the script from the original show follow following along. Get her a shea Get her a shea I mean, it's like so subtle, but like you can hear this extra texture that if we had compressed it, would be completely erased. And so all of that was so important to me because that was informing my understanding of the recording. Knowing that it was, this is an episode from 1952, from November 1952, I knew that it was taped over it, so the recording had to happen after 1952. So it's just kind of like all of this information, all of this sound texture is actually information for a person who knows nothing <laughs> about what they're listening to. Okay, so we designed the, the performance to include these voices as well. So the table that everyone sits at, there's an additional role of characters and each of these people in this back row represent a character who is performing on this radio program. So even those trace voices are present physically in this space of the performance. And we kind of share that information about them as it, as it goes on. So I'm also currently working on a second printing of the script that includes this entire episode, almost like as a bleed through. So I don't know if you can see it here, but it's just really subtly there. 
And so it's not, this isn't something that we're gonna announce to the audience. It's just like there for you to discover or if you're looking for it, um, that there's almost this additional layer of information also physically imprinted on our transcript. So I wanted to talk about rules. I really feel like for myself and my own practice, creating rules for myself in making a piece, and I can eventually break them, but they really help me to create uh, creative storytelling opportunities. So I set up a bunch of rules for myself for Say Something Bunny, and these are rules that I used, and of course, if you wanna use your own rules, that's completely up to you, and these aren't rules that you should use for your project because they're so specific to our process of Say Something Bunny, um, but I wanted to share what some of my rules are. So creating structure can give you place to play within. One of the examples that I wanted to share about an artist that was really influential to me, uh, whose work that I referenced a lot in thinking about making Say Something Bunny was an artist, Leanne Shapton. But before I go into her work, I just wanted to say, I think it's really important to look outside of your discipline for inspiration of structural ways of thinking about how to make a piece. Like I think that with Say Something Bunny, I was really looking at a lot of books for inspiration of structure. I think when you think about audio and you want to say, I want it to sound like this, you might say, I want it to sound like this episode of Radiolab where they use it. But, um, but I think that it's also important to be like, I want it to sound like how this person's writing this piece in a book or something. Like, and I think that if you take sources that are outside of your discipline, it really forces you to create new kind of formal, I don't know how to describe it, but just like That's you're right. being more creatively formally if you're not just borrowing other people, uh, other works from your own discipline. So this book by Leanne Shapton, it's called Important Artifacts, Personal Property from the Collection of Lenore Doolin and Harold Morris, including books, street fashion, and jewelry. So this is a book, speaking of limits and rules, so she's taken the format of an auction catalog to tell the story of a couple getting together and then their relationship falling apart. The entire story is told just through images of objects that are sold at this auction and the captions of those images. And through that simple act, you're able to really create this like story about these people. But that story is happening in the audience's imagination. You're not telling them necessarily the beginning and the middle and end. You're really forcing them to like create that story themselves by just giving them these um, little pieces within this book. So I highly recommend reading this book. It was really influential. Another rule was don't go to the authorities for me. So for Say Something Bunny, I really decided from the beginning that I think most journalists would take the approach. I'm not a journalist. I'm an artist in, in training. So my approach is a little bit different. But you research up to the point where you can find a person who's related to this found material. And then you interview them and ask them the questions and get the information from them. Firstly, I wasn't sure if they were still alive, so that wasn't really an option at the beginning. But once I found out who the people were, I really decided I'm not going to ask them. I'm really going to try and find out for myself what the story is. And so it really required me to construct that myself through looking at different documents, connecting multiple archival materials to create a story and to construct a story. So the other section is have a reason behind almost every decision. This is for me using research to solve your formal decisions and problem solving throughout your process. So can you ask a material to give you the answers to your questions or is the answer to your question already in front of you 
in what you're working with. So an example of this is our set for Say Something Bunny, which was this 14-foot circular table. And we knew we wanted it to happen around the table and for the table to be kind of like a cubby that held the props of the performance and was really a container for the performance. But what that looked like, what color it was, what materials it was made out of, those were all decisions that we had to make in producing the piece. So eventually we realized that the table could be based on the wire itself. And like it was in front of me the whole time and it was just something that one day it just was like, it could be the wire, it could be a circular table. It could, and it made so much sense conceptually for us because the people who are sitting around the table, their relationships are continuous. So we have this table so, and then we have to put people at the table. And the decisions about how to put people and arrange the characters around the table was really important. Um, so we have the characters, we set them up, and we set them up in a way that kind of represented their relationships to one another, so that there was a lot of information that was kind of being told to you just by how people were positioned. So you have families that are together, neighbors are beside neighbors, um, if you're married, you're usually beside each other, or if you're mother and like son and stuff relationships. So it's like, this was trying to create um, a spatial, a subconscious kind of spatial memory uh, organization of the characters in order to make sense of like how people are sitting. So we kind of were employing this idea by Samanidis. Simonides. 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 <laughs> Who was a, a Greek poet, um, and he, in, in 477 BC, he was in a banquet, and the roof collapsed, and it killed everyone except for him. And so their faces were disfigured, and they weren't recognizable, but they, they needed someone, he was the only person alive, and they needed someone to help identify the bodies. And so he was able to figure out who was in the room by thinking spatially of where they were sitting at this table and you know the conversations in that room and like using spatial recognition. So we were trying to kind of like employ that way of like using your memory as a way to like, there's 15 characters in this performance. There's no way you're gonna remember everyone's names, but you kind of remember the Tenenbaums are over here, you know, Uncle Sam's over here. And so we're trying to use a lot of kind of like spatial memory to help people, the audience, remember what's happening. So it's really a question of matching content and form. And we decided to use that as the format of the table, not only because it was interesting formally to us uh, to have this actor's read through as a format, but also because it connected back to the research. So in learning about this family, I realized that one of the main characters was a playwright and he wrote scripts. And so this experience of bringing actors to the table for the first time was something that he had experienced a lot in his life. So it really connected back to the research again. So the other rule that I had was don't edit. So I decided that I didn't want to edit any of the audio. I wanted to use it in its entirety and I didn't want to like change it at all. This meant that I had to include sections that were very difficult to hear or also almost completely silent. So there's this one moment in the recording where it's about one minute of silence. And then it goes into, you kind of hear someone singing a little bit, and then it goes back to silence, and then it goes back into the recording. It's this weird interruption in the second act. And for the longest time, I didn't know what that was, but I really decided I can't edit this out. My job as a storyteller is to try and make sense of this section of the recording. So I ended up doing some research, and then ended up coming across this document. 
the affidavit of compliance with smoke detector requirement for one and two family dwellings signed by Lawrence Newberg on behalf of the estate of David Newberg, located at 70 East 10th Street, apartment 3K, Manhattan, New York. So this is something of like a dry legal document, but it's telling me the information that Larry, the youngest brother, was the executor of David, the older brother's uh, will, and then he sold his property in 2008. And then I had also known that the wire got in my possession at, in 2011, so it's probable that it had passed through multiple hands before it got to me, and maybe that process took over three years, and that in 2007, David had passed away. So these three pieces of information made me kind of realize that it was possible that David had the wire recorder his whole life, and when he died, something might have happened to it at the estate sale. So it ended up resulting in this moment of silence. So throughout this whole process, I had always wondered how this wire kind of got to me and why it was originally given away. I always think about that with these found pieces that I'm working with was like, why did they give it away and how did they give it away? And this moment of silence, I didn't realize at the time was this weird gift that later kind of solved that for me and was a way for me to understand how that ended up, my, the recording ended up with me. So this really was a eureka moment for me. This was one of those things where all of a sudden I was like, Larry sold it at the estate sale. And I honestly believe that happened because this project took six years to make. Like I started this in 2011, didn't work on it full time, picked it up and put it down. Like I'd pick it up, I'd do some transcription. I'd be like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'd put it down, I'd think about it. And then I'd, you know, and then that happened over maybe five years. And then in the last year, that's when I really started working on it more intensely and like doing more serious research on it. But I didn't realize until maybe a year after first performing this piece when I was reading The Pursuit of Happiness by Bertrand Russell, he's talking about how subconscious processing is always happening in the background and how sometimes when you start a project and you think about it, I'm just going to read a quote from it. So Russell says, I found, for example, that if I have to write upon something rather difficult, the best plan is to think about it with very great intensity, the greatest intensity of which I'm capable for a few hours or days, and at the end of that time give order, so to speak, that the work is to proceed underground. So after some months, I return consciously to the topic and find that the work has been done. Before I had discovered this technique, I used to spend time in the intervening months worrying because I was making no progress. I arrived at the solution none the faster for this worry, and the worry worrying time was intervening months were wasted. So I really feel like that was happening for this project. I had so many moments of realization in the, in the second half of this process, in the last quarter of this project. I think because I had done all of this kind of work at the beginning of just keeping it in my mind. So I think that like for all of you who are working on projects that may have started like four years ago, 10 years ago, like. You're gonna figure it out. And sometimes those projects just take a lot of time because you're just processing it. And you're like looking at other things that are informing you. And it's not until later where you're sitting down and revisiting stuff that you make those connections and you make those realizations and you figure out that's how I tell this story. So that always really stuck with me, thinking about subconsciousness. And, and this also, I think subconsciousness is playing into how we're making this performance. So I really believe in layered storytelling and kind of planting these things 
for the audience in multiple forms so that they're constructing the story. And I don't necessarily announce everything, like the, you know, the script, having that stuff in the background. That's just there for you to realize or to see the details if you want to. But if you're just taking other stuff in and that's too much, that's okay too. Like that you can create layered storytelling as a way to create a way to telling the story that people who are coming from multiple different places can find a way into it. Um, so with the script, we had the bleed through, we, and also we insert the images, so those are also just kind of like little plants for you to kind of put back into the story later. Um, we also have objects on the table. We have projection in the space, so we project archival material and some video and animations in the space. And then also on the table, each of the characters are given an object that somehow is related to something about them or a story told about them. And these are also working in that memory palace thing that I was talking about earlier, uh, where these are also placeholders so that other people can be like, oh yeah, Juliet and the cake, or uh, Sam and the cigarettes or something. So it's also ways of being like, these objects are helping you remember what character is what character and where they're sitting and everything. So I'm also trying to make this piece accessible, that there can be something in there for everyone. and creating opportunities for audiences to recognize these details. So if you're really into the performance, you might notice that in the waiting room, you're listening to a Calypso record, and then later in the performance, there's like this, they're traveling to this island, and like, it's okay if you don't notice it, but it's there. And just like creating these details, I think, adds so much texture and like possibility for people to enter your, these layers, and how deep they go into that is completely up to them, but that they can get up they can get something out of it no matter how deep they go. So I think that this is stemming from a belief that it's not doing anyone a service to dumb something down, that you can make work that's clever and fun and playful and humorous and accessible. And in researching Say Something Bunny, I was watching this documentary called The Jewish Americans because a family in this uh, recording are Jewish. And there's this quote by Tony Kushner, who's the playwright uh, behind Angels in America, who started talking about the tradition of Yiddish theater and how it views its audience. In Yiddish theater, there's an understanding that what is deep and profound and complicated need not be um, uh, elitist or removed, that, 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 that all people are smart and that anybody with a good head can, can get a fairly complicated kind of entertainment. So I kind of wanted to end the talking portion just with on this note of thinking about your audience and to be generous to them and that they are smart and it's really on you as the storyteller to just share your enthusiasm. People will get why something that would otherwise seem very banal and ordinary as something very interesting and compelling if you're passionate about it and if you're able to communicate to that, that to them. And I think that's really what we're trying to do with Say Something Bunny is to be like, it's important to listen to this thing where, where you almost can't hear it. But if you try, and if, you, if I'm trying to be like, if there's something in there that hopefully the audience comes along on this journey with me and trusts me. And I think that that's where kind of the story comes from. Uh, this was so fascinating and really inspiring. Um, also, it's funny because I mean I really connected to the material a lot because it reminded me so much of my own family. 
But um, I'm really curious, because given how much audio you found in general, why this family fascinated you so much? Why this was this rabbit hole that you uh, got sucked into? And, and what it is about this family that you feel like speaks to other broader things and topics and themes? I think that, so, like, because I've been making work with found audio recordings for the last 10 years, people sometimes just give me stuff. And that was the case with this, that someone gave it to me. Um, and it really was because, for me, in listening to it, I immediately felt joy. It immediately captured me, my humor. Like, the, the, the way that they related to each other was just joyful for me to listen to, for me to listen to. And, you know, when you go into a project for a long time, at the beginning, I didn't know how long I was going to spend on it. But it really was, you have to love something in it. And so for me, it had that. But it also had this kind of like, something that was a little bit heartbreaking, I usually say. Like it's this always, it has to have this combination of these two things where it's joyous and humorous and funny, but it also has something that's sad <laughs> in a way. And so for me, whenever I look at a piece, it has to have both of those things. And it also has to be ordinary. like. There's something about this that when I listened to it, it reminded me of my own home videos. And when I was watching them, I saw them differently after working on this piece. So there's something about the, the material that I'm interested in working with that we, anyone could have made it. And it was almost not really made with this intention, uh, for this intention to be grand. It's just something that we just make by being alive. And I feel like this really was that. And it also has moments where People are secretly recording people. Like there's so much that happens in it that I eventually discovered later that I knew I loved in the beginning of it and didn't know why. But then later you figure out why you love something. Like you're just a, a start, you're attracted to it and then you find out later why you were attracted to it. Um, first of all, I just, just want to say that was a wonderful presentation and I just really love the way you extrapolated and expanded from this one little wire recording to a whole participatory multimedia artwork and I don't think I'll get the chance to go to it because I'm in the Bay Area, but I just, I wish I could. It really looks lovely. The other thing was just a quick comment. You showed a script fragment up there about somebody commenting how they'd made a mistake buying this thing and someone else commenting on someone having bought something else that's much better than wire, that's almost certainly magnetic tape, which came out in the end of the 40s. So that's kind of a fun little detail, too, since you inter seem interested in fun little details. Yeah, it's a hilarious conversation between the two brothers, where it's like the older brother is always very dominant, and like knowing what's right, and the little brother's like, you made a mistake, Dave. And he's like, I know, it's broken. And he's like, Magnetic tape's better, I know. It has two sides. I know, Larry, I made a mistake. It's just like this amazing sibling dynamic. <laughs> In other work that you've done, I think you mentioned making this accessible, and it seems like part of what made it accessible is the multimedia elements, uh, the objects and the projections. If you were stripped of those tools, how might you go about, or perhaps you've done this in other projects, how might you make somewhat inaccessible tape more accessible if you were if you only had audio to work with I think it's I think that a lot of the visuals are helpful but I think it could function without that it's really about how you set up the context for me I think it's that you're you're writing around the piece and in kind of trying to help people listen and and hear it in the way that you do like the whole thing is with this performance i've worked on it in six for six years so i know it in a different way but like my job as the performer is really to try and just give you enough information so you can see it from my eyes and so i think that from a writing standpoint even if you're just working with audio it's just like 
what is it that you find so interesting in that that you can communicate to your listener and just set that up in audio, just in talking to them or like playing clips of things that informed your understanding. I think with this, with this uh, piece, my research process was very, I just followed tangents. So like I would be starting to research one thing in the family, but then I'd like discover that all this other stuff happened. And it, that was really, I think a lot of people feel bad. They're like, oh, don't go by that, through that Wikipedia black hole or something. But I was like, it's fine. This is my process. This is my way through this material. If someone else got this and told a story about it, it would be completely different. Like if a, you know, an, a historian of like Jewish culture in the 1950s got, got this, they'd have a completely different reading, but this is my reading. And so I think it's really about finding your personal path through why this audio is significant to you and sharing and figuring out a way to share that. If I can just add quickly the little detail here. Um, so this piece was originally, Allison was uh, invited to have a solo show at an art gallery. Um, and this is what she brought into the solo show, uh, which was became a quite a theatrical piece. And in a lot of ways, theater's not supposed to happen in the art gallery, right? <laughs> and so just to go back to the sort of idea of form and content, there's a way in which, you know, kind of breaking the rules of the medium, like she, she was, she, uh, changing the, the, the perception of people who are walking in that space. And I think within audio, too, we have so many received conventions of how narrative is supposed to play out, but there's so many other opportunities. And if we have smart listeners, you might be able to borrow the framework of uh, a different structure, like Allison mentioned with this, this book or other things, and bring that into the creation of the narrative. I think there's a lot of potential still there. And also understanding the listener's approach, like having sympathy for what it's like to listen to something for the first time. Cause like I'm listening to this and I know what they're saying, but like in listening to that clip for 30 seconds, like I understand that there's no way you can hear all of the voices and just kind of like recognizing that, that sympathy to the listener of them understanding that they're coming into it cold and that they don't have the context that you have. And like, I think that that was also important. When you, um, you did so much research and you, and you found these people, you found out who they were, and once you realized who they were and that some of them were still alive, did you uh, contact them and tell them what you were doing with their families' voices, or did you not? And can you talk a little bit about that decision and how you squared yourself with whatever that decision was? And if you did get their permission, how did you do it? Okay, spoiler alert. Close your ears if you don't want <laughs> <laughs> So we did find the one person who is still alive and we called them up and it was kind of a hilarious call because we're you know it's a intense thing to explain to someone that you're kind of their biggest fan and like you know everything about them or you think you know everything about them right so we called up the last surviving character which was the youngest is larry he's 13 in the recording i think he's 79 now um, but we, during the whole process, I just kept every phone number, every address of every character alive, like when they were alive or if they were dead, I had it for everyone. And then we just started calling that. We called him and uh, I actually had to get Christopher to do it because I was like, I don't know if I can like actually say words out loud if he answers the phone. And the amazing thing was he was so much of the person who he is on the recording. And... I was so scared going in that he would be different somehow and that he wouldn't be, he would just be like, no, you can't do this. But I think that he, when we, we met him and we played the recording for him and then like a couple months later, he came to the performance. 
um, which was amazing for us. We were like, I hope he likes it. <laughs> um, but it really, and but he, he got it. He totally got it. And he had corrections, and that's totally fine, right? But we really were like, we're keeping the performance what it's like before meeting Larry. At the same time, meeting Larry meant I had to stop my research in some ways. Like, he, I now had the authority that I was avoiding for the whole time. I think it was important for me to not have met him until after I finished writing this, because it really is a work of archival research, but also imagination. Like, I didn't have him to tell me what the truth was. I had to figure out what I thought the truth was. Um, and so meeting him was kind of also just like this perfect ending, I think, for this journey. But also, he's kind of like a friend that, like, we hung out. I got lunch with him two weeks ago. He was coming to New York for a Yankees game, which is hilarious, because in the recording, he's like, the Yankees are going to win the pennant. And it's, I'm just like, everything's connected. Um, but he's, yeah. And so we have this permission, and he's like, you got to, he's like sending tickets from his, he's sending his friends to the show and he's like, make them buy tickets. You got to make money off of this. Like he's just, he's amazing. Um, he's just like, my, both, my, all of my grandparents passed away when I was like younger. So I'm kind of like, I have a, a grandfather now. Like he's my Sam. Um, so yeah. Um, I actually saw the play, I think about a year ago. It was fantastic. Um, and I did have, it was, I was a bit struck um, by one thing, I think, talking about conventions in audio, there's often this convention of, like, the reflection, the, like, this means this thing, and I was struck by, like, how little that was in the show, and I was wondering, like, how that came to be, what, I mean, I'm sure it was a conscious choice, but, you know, did you consider other options about kind of talking about the meaning of time and, or, or something, or, or were you really more interested in just kind of the quest of understanding the recording? For me, I, I feel like the performance is set up to ask those questions, but to get the audience to ask those questions themselves. So I think that for us, we're like show, giving them information and sharing this story and in doing it in such a way that at the end people are like, what's gonna happen to my stuff when I die? Like, what's gonna happen to my legacy? Or like, I, I think it's just different people come out asking different questions, but I think it's really like, you can do it. Like we understand the audience can do that work themselves and like they're smart. And that that's for later. That we really set up the performance where it's a very minimal set, there's very minimal props. All of the work happens in your imagination. And so I think that that leads to like having those understandings of like what some of the ideas behind this were and how you think about stuff like legacy and family and you know those questions that you're bringing up. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about talk a little more about doubt and also creative purgatory. I feel like often I'm like pretty much done with the project, and it's just it, all I need to do is send it to a printer and put it online, and it just it's just sitting there. And and I'm scared to go back to it too because I know I'll have a different viewpoint of it. And when's the thing finished? And I think with this performance, like it's never finished. The thing that's funny about performance as well is like we didn't know if it worked until the first time we did it in front of people. And so there was doubt the whole way. We were just kind of like, I don't know if this is gonna translate. Like I hope it works, but we weren't really sure. And we're actually still kind of working on it. Like there's not, still, not kind of. Well, we're still working <laughs> on it. For me, that's what I love about performance is like it's always evolving and it can change. And also it changes as you learn things from doing it for different people. Like you try it a different way when a new audience comes in. And it's like you're saying the same lines, but you're just trying a different way of saying those lines or something. So for me, it's really fun to do it where it's live and 
I, I feel like like there's a lot more opportunity for radio and audio to be live now, which is I think really interesting. And I think that you can take each opportunity to share it as a way to kind of like work on it and learn what you did last time and make sure you take notes after you first present it because you, you'll kind of forget that stuff when you have to do it again. Um, so I think that's always really helpful. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the previous versions because there was a pretty long span of time when this was not clear what this was going to be. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I like had meltdowns like five years in and I had a deadline coming up to present it. And the curator, I think, picked up on that and was like, let's give you a couple more months. But I was like, I, have no, I had no idea what I was going to do for the first five years. For the first probably five and a half years. Like really, you know, I didn't know. And I was like, I have to do this. And it was very stressful. I knew it was something, but I didn't really know what form it was. And I tried different things. And it wasn't until like we did this, when we figured out on this car ride, um, we were taking a car ride for eight hours and was just like, it's a read through, we wanna make a book. These are things that we wanna do. It was a kind of a combination of understanding what we wanted to do and what the thing was telling us to make of it. Kind of merging those two things, like I wanted to make a book. And so taking opportunities to be like, with your next piece or something, you can be like, what do you wanna experiment with and does that make sense with this piece? And then just try it, I think. How did you figure out which episode of Our Miss Brooks it was? Great question. <laughs> so at, at the end of the recording, there's maybe like a minute of just the trace end of Our Miss Brooks that wasn't taped over. And they reveal that they have this contest at the end of the episode where they're searching for America's prettiest school teacher. <laughs> and so they said, we're announcing this. We're going to announce it on December 9th, 1952. So I was like, it must be like within probably like a month of when they announced it or two months or something. So then went to the archive and searched for that. But I only actually had one line of the script, which was it's hotter in here than it was before that I had to like look through all of the scripts and like search for that. They're not digitized. Line. You couldn't just search. Yeah. There's eight years of scripts of a weekly show. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you say it took you a really long time to, or. That sounds wrong. You worked on this for a really long time. Um, this is kind of, I don't know, what were you doing otherwise? Like, it's kind of, how do you manage sort of like paying the bills and then creating art? And then also, how, did you, in managing that, did you carve out specific time for your art? And how do you organize that sort of on like a day-to-day -day basis? So at the time of like between 2011 and 2016, I would say, so Christopher has an organization called Union Docs. So I work there as a special projects director, which I still do. So I also, I'm doing the performance and I also am working at Union Docs as well. Um, and at the same time, like, so I was doing Say Something Bunny kind of in the background, just like working on the transcript. And I was also doing like other projects and residencies and stuff. Um, so I kind of like had the day job at Union Docs. I'd freelance. Like it was really just like what everyone's doing. You're just like, doing whatever, and I don't think that I really carved out that much time for it. Like, I, I wasn't like, every three months, I'm gonna work on this. I was just kind of thinking, oh yeah, I should, I should work on that again. Like, I'm just curious to look things up again, and we just, it was really kind of just this wandering, like, coming back to, like, whenever I felt like it. I never really forced it. It was always just, I knew it was always there, and I could always come back to it, but yeah, and I, I would just do other projects along the way. And the, only, the reason why this ended up happening was just because I had an uh, opportunity to present a solo show at a gallery in Toronto and just pitch this piece to, and then had like two years or something to work on that. 
and then through them. And it, because I had the show, was able to like apply for grants because they were kind of like a credible institution and then got that money. So this was really, this only really happened because I had one opportunity, which was to do this exhibition. Hi. Um, so I was actually Patsy when I came to see <laughs> Provence, um, which was great. Um, and the question I had then, the question I have now is, what was your organizational process? Because like you had, you amassed, I'm guessing, a ton of things, and I had no idea how I'd work at that. So I'd like to know how you did. Yeah. It's spreadsheets. There are just lots and lots of spreadsheets, and also I just have to like. At a certain point, I also began to like download things and then label them because sometimes things are gone. Like you'll find information and then it disappears from the internet, and it's very strange, like broken links and stuff. So it was, it was constantly like just adding stuff to a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet is also like the facts that I did find and then all of the paths that went nowhere, all of the people who I thought was one person, then it ended up being another family or something. So it's like, it's kind of this like weird document that has the links to how I figured this up, but also all of the like dead ends. Um, thanks so much. Um, so I'm, there were countless decisions on the form that your performance was going to take that just you know took years and everything else. It seems to me that one of the most pivotal ones was um, this the sort of form of the actor's reading. And I was sort of wondering, you know, if you, you wanted to create a performance and you wanted the audience to be engaged, but they don't really have to speak or perform themselves. And so I was kind of wondering how long you went without making that decision, that that was really going to be sort of the format of the whole performance. I mean, because that seems so, it's so unique. And I'm, and I'm trying to think what an even an alternative would be that allows that type of engagement. I can't even, um, and I was just wondering how long you tolerated not knowing what that interaction between you and the audience was going to be. I mean, knowing that you wanted it to be a performance piece itself. It kind of happened at the same time. So this project was over six years. I would say five and a half years was like research and transcription, but like not knowing. Oh, wow. And I think so that the you, project really came together in like six months. So you I mean, were just I, like, I've got this tape and I've got this info. And not until the very end was it like, here's how it's yeah. going to actually be a performance. And it was really like Christopher came also in as well. Not like a performance. Like it, she wasn't thinking, I need to make a performance. Um, right. She was invited to do a solo gallery show. So actually the first time this was made, performed, it was in the context of an art gallery. Um, which was, so it was really a break from what you would expect in an art gallery to begin with. Um, but yeah, so that, that was a decision that came with the material. It was like a couple of things. And I think that this is also like the combination of like, what's the thing telling you to make of it? There was something about the family that was so performative and that just I felt really needed to be experienced in a linear way with other people. Um, and also things that like we wanted to do. So I really wanted to make a book work and we ended up figuring out that it was going to be a read through by taking a car ride and just being like not able to do anything else, really. We were driving from North Carolina to New York, and it was like eight hours or something, and we're like, okay, let's talk about this project. And then we just talked about it and figured out yeah. that that would make sense. Nelson had tried many different things at different approaches at that point. It was, we were thinking about it as maybe a film that would be a lot of recreation. Maybe it would be um, it'd be more about like a sort of a museum of objects that you'd move through. And so there was many different things that we were thinking about, but then she kept talking about this book, or like wanting to make a book somehow, and then we were just like, and actually, it was interesting in different points on the path, like as Alison was presenting her work, 
she would present this work in progress, say something funny, and she'd, pre she'd present it with this clip that was a little portion of the audio you heard with the transcript just playing on the screen. And it really worked in front of the audience. It was like people could just see the text. And, it was, it, and I just remember thinking, I'm so surprised that just the text on the screen and listening to this is so entertaining. And so like we kept coming back to that and we was like, maybe we don't have to illustrate all this stuff that would be impossible to like recreate and illustrate. Yeah. Maybe um, the text mm -hmm. can, and, on a, and the book kind of idea can come together. So uh, there's a lot also Allison didn't touch on in this perform or in this discussion about how the book is designed. The book itself also embodies a lot of things like each page is only 30 seconds long. And um, so it's kind of like a graphic of the audio in a way. Um, so more more about that, but um, yeah, having this desire to make a book work, I think, was a big part of it. Hi, um, you seem like someone who's almost magically incapable of boredom. <laughs> but I'm wondering that parts of this seem like they would involve a lot of boredom and tedium, and I'm just wondering what role that played in your creative process. I think that's why it took six years as well it's like I pick it up and like I I just was like I can't do this right now you know and and I think that that's okay to like listen to yourself when you're ready to do something it's funny because it took me such a long time to make the transcript of the family and we just did a residency in August where I did the transcript of the Armist Brooks underneath it and I like got so into it but it is it was kind of boring but it also was like it felt like I was discovering something or it was really exciting to me because I was like, oh my gosh, this whole time it's been a mystery. It's like constructing a mystery for yourself to solve through these, this tedious work, you know? I think it's really about that, just being like, it's a mystery, am I gonna find this script? You know, it's like making a little game for yourself. Make yourself rules and make it a game, I guess. I have also think that Alison has like a very uncanny ability to project empathy into these like, um, these, seemingly impenetrable documents and things and see something there. And that, that was like, when I heard the recording in that car ride, like I was like, yeah, it's the first five minutes are pretty good. Um, like we're using it all. <laughs> like, uh, but the, yeah, I mean, it, and, and just like, I, that was really clear throughout the, 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 the imagination she brings to it. And like when she sees these little details, they mean something much bigger than, and there's like a whole story behind that little detail than what most of us would, when we approach a, the detail is. So I think that like, it's not always, I don't, I, you're also very impatient. And so I, I, don't, I don't think the truth is you're sitting around being bored, but yeah. So I got to see this like right after it got funded on Kickstarter. Oh. <laughs> and Thank then, you. <laughs> uh, yay. And then um, it, it seems like it keeps getting extended, which is super awesome. And I'm so happy for you, but I'm also wondering like on the 270th, performance of it how do you feel about doing it again and what is like the this sort of pace of your other work that's happening underneath that like how what does that look like for you Bunny's pretty much full-time right now and I think that in the like maybe in 2019 I'll start be thinking about other projects there's some that are kind of in the back of my mind but it's really focused on say something funny and I I mean in terms of doing something that many times it really is like you have to choose if it's a learning experience for you. I did not, I was not a performer before this and I had never done anything live that was longer than 20 minutes. This is two and a half hours. So it, it, it's a learning experience. I'm still learning how to like not lose my voice, how to not get sick, how to keep it 
present and to keep it alive. Because I think that that's the other challenge when you do something many times is that to not make it feel canned, to like be in the room with people and help them experience it for the first time and make it feel like you're telling it for the first time. And so that's, I'm constantly going back and forth. It's always nice to have a break. So like we're not doing it this weekend. I feel like when we go back, it's gonna be so nice to be like, it's fresh again, you know? And, it, and I do hear new things. It's, it's crazy. I mean, when you listen to something that many times, you hear things differently. I just I want to return to this slide, give the audience some work to do, because the audiences that come into the room really do so much for Allison. And like, there's so many, like 90% of the performances it are like go by so quickly in our breeze because of the, like, there's just joy in the room and people are laughing and enjoy having, and Allison gets to take them on this ride. And it's like, doesn't seem like much. Um, when the audiences don't do the work, she gets pretty annoyed. So, <laughs> and if they're not following along and having that same sense of joy, then if that, that like connection isn't in the room, and it's weird because it's only 25 people in the room, so it's like a party. If, if, it, if it's not, the party's not hidden, it's not hidden. Um, and, uh, and it's because it's a social dynamic, really. Um, and people may be enjoying it thoroughly, but are very, be very quiet, and, and, uh, and that creates a different experience. So, but as long mm -hmm. as that feedback is there, because this is such an intimate thing, in my observation, seeing Allison's mood afterwards, she's super psyched. <laughs> but uh, when it's when it's quiet, it's harder. Hi, thank you. Uh, this has been mind blowing, really cool. Um, but I had one question. Uh, so, because you're an artist and a performer, so you're probably getting a lot of feedback from uh, other people in the artist community and um, the audio community. But like, what has the response been from the historical community, like people who are research academic researchers in history? Specifically, I feel like it's been pretty positive. Um, I think that it's it's a different approach of how how to tell a history, and I think that that's what's been really nice to have like historians and arch archivists um, come in is that they're kind of like there's there's so many histories to be told, and to like try and find a new way or a new form for that to be told. I think that they really I think it's been pretty positive. I mean. I'm an amateur researcher, and I think that I kind of announced that in the performance. Like, I'm doing a lot of research, but I also am like figuring it out as I go. So I think an a regular archivist would probably do a much faster <laughs> review. Um, but yeah, it's it's been very, we're very fortunate that people get it. Like, it's kind of a challenging performance and what we ask people to do, but fortunately, like people are able to connect to it in different ways depending on their discipline and I, I think that's also the hope with all the work that we're doing is that no matter where you're coming from you can find a way to connect with it whether you've gone through that process yourself of researching or you just uh, the, vo the voices sound like your grandparents or something but there's something to connect to yeah the historians that have come uh have been Allison calls herself an amateur but uh expert historians that have come have been like, this is how it works. <laughs> like, they're like, it's speculation and there's this data and you know, somehow the story emerges from these two things. And so, um, so I think that's been thrilling for people. You know, the, the times and people have written about it as like detective work, but I actually think it is much closer to like the work of a historian that's going, going back. 